today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's on page 959 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, which has a ton of relevance for us today. He writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Lord Jesus, would you help us to be better lovers of you and one another and our neighbor as a result of looking at this text this morning? Would you supernaturally transform us into being people who love others more than self? For your glory, for the good of those who we do life with, and for the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. You may have a seat. Out of curiosity, how many people have a wedding anniversary this month? Put your hand up nice and high. All right, like a third of the room. Out of curiosity, regardless of when your wedding anniversary is, did you have this passage read at your wedding? Put your hand up nice and high. Only a few. See, one of the things that I've noticed is uh, people who grew up around the church, uh, sometimes we don't want this passage read at our wedding because it's read at like every non-Christian wedding, right? Like, if you have any spiritual inclination or if you want a good poem read at a wedding, people pick this passage, even if they don't care at all for the Bible or for the law of God or for the ethic of Jesus. This passage is amazing, right? It's a great wedding passage. And so if you had it read at your wedding, good job. It's a great passage. It's all about love. If you, it, but here's the thing to keep in mind. This passage isn't about marital love. This passage is about Christian love. It's about the ethic of a Christian life. It's about how we follow Jesus. And it's so timely for us because I, I, I think love has always been a confusing concept and idea for mankind, like regardless of what culture you're in, regardless of what continent you live on, regardless of your, your era of life, love, it just gets twisted, right? And different cultures have different expressions of love. They have different words for love. They have different values surrounding love and relationships and the way that people relate to others. And in our culture, 
how do we define love, right? One of the key ways that we define love right now is that love is love. What does that even mean? It's like when I, when I try to communicate to my kids, my kids have great questions right now about what certain words mean or what certain concepts are, and I struggle when they, I, I couldn't remember one off the top of my head, but when they give me a word, they're like, what does this word mean? I really struggle to define certain words without using that same word, and when I use the same word, it just doesn't help them. And so when we, right, because they're trying to figure out what does that word mean, and so when we live in a culture that says love is love, it leaves us wanting. What does that mean? I understand the sentiment behind the statement that love is love, but it's really shallow. It's really empty. What does it really mean? And this passage this morning gives us a great look into what love is. And again, it's not about marital love. It's not about romantic love. It's about something much deeper, something much greater, regardless of your relational status this morning. I want this passage to be recovered for us from wedding ceremonies and be foundational to us as people of Jesus. You may live your entire life as a single to the glory of God, and this passage should guide you. You may live in a marriage of strife and trial for your entire life, and this passage should guard you. You may be widowed and missing your spouse, and this passage should still guide you in all of your interactions with the people of God. And so what is love? As we look at this passage, we have to ask these questions. What is love? And we're going to walk through this passage today and just see a couple things that love is based off of Scripture, based off the Word of God given through the Apostle Paul to this church 2,000 years ago. The first point that we need to notice is that love is greater than gifts. See, this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, it's uniquely situated in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Last week, we read and looked at 1 Corinthians 12, which was all about spiritual gifts, right? And we had a list up on the screen of 23 different spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that there's a variety. Look at chapter 12, verse 4. He says, now there are a variety of gifts. There's all these supernatural spiritual gifts that the people of God are given for the upbuilding and the encouragement of the church and also for the expanse of the gospel, Gifts are good. Some of you are gifted with administration. Some of, you, some of you are gifted with craftsmanship. Some of you are gifted with preaching or teaching. Some of you are gifted with hospitality. Some of you are gifted with the gift of helps, whatever it may be. These are good gifts given by God to his people for his glory. And that's what chapter 12 is about. And then chapter 14, which we're going to look at next week, is about the gift of prophecy and tongues being expressed in the church gathering. So that's where we're going next week. But right in between these two chapters, 12 and 14, which are about gifts, chapter 13 is focused on love. Because Paul wants to remind the church, the people of God, that love is greater than gifts. Gifts are so important. The body doesn't function well without gifts. But gifts without love are destructive. Look at what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and there's debate, there's controversy, there's church splits over what tongues mean. Some people say it's just a different language that can be interpreted. Like you, you may have noticed, like when Linnea said the cities that she lives in in the name of the church, like some of you are like, is she speaking a different language? I didn't understand. Yes, she was. She was saying it in, in their language. And she has the gift of tongues in one sense that she knows Spanish incredibly well fluent in Spanish. I do not. I took a few years of Spanish, and I know the word no in Spanish. <laughs> Comprendo? You got me? I know those two words. 
and banyo. That's an important one. If I speak in tongues, and so tongues can be the ability to speak and interpret different languages. And he says also of angels, there's this, there's this prayer language, this prayer tongue, this heavenly tongue given by God. And some people really value this gift. Some church movements really value this gift, like you have to get these gifts. But he says, if I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. My words, whether it's a prayer language or a communicated language with another tribe or tongue or nation or language, it's wasted if it's without love. Love is greater than this gift. He goes on, verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. How many times have you been around Christians that they just, they just want more faith, they want more power, they want more knowledge, they want more prophetic power? And he says, you can, you can have these gifts. These gifts are good. They're, they're even necessary for the body. But if you use them without love, they're destructive. Love is greater than the gifts. And in fact, look at the end of chapter 12. And so it's interesting, chapter 12, he gives all these different gifts and he's saying they're all necessary, they're all needed, they're all interdependent, there's not greater gifts and lesser gifts, but then he does say in verse 31, he says, but eagerly desire the higher gift. And he will go on to make the point that prophecy is a higher gift because in this church, in this culture, in this context, they needed words from God. They needed God to reveal to them what is true and what is right and what is clear. And so he's actually encouraging them in this context to seek the gift of prophecy. But I think there's also a second meaning here. He says, eagerly desire the higher gifts. And then look at the end of verse 31. He says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Saying the, the most excellent way. There's not a more excellent gift. There's not a more important gift. There's not a gift that you should all be clamoring to get. There's a more excellent way. And that way is the way of love. Because gifts are, love is greater than gifts. Look at verse 2. I mean, it's just fascinating. How many times have you been around Christians who may have the gift of prophecy and people are like, oh, gift envy, right? One pastor refers to a lot of what we do in the church as gift projection. Like if you have the gift of administration, you, you, you really value that and you think everyone else should be able to administer something. If you have the gift of hospitality, your home is always open and you're you're like, why aren't other people ever having people in their homes? That's not fair. I'm wearing myself out and people never, well, maybe they don't have the gift of hospitality. Don't put that on them. Don't project your gift onto other people. How many times in Christian circles, you know, it, like a word of knowledge, a great teacher, somebody who understands the text so clearly and so well, and, and people are like, I love listening to their podcast. They're the smartest, most knowledgeable Bible scholar I've ever heard. I wish I had that gift. I wish my pastor had that gift. I wish this person had that gift. Gift projection. And he's not saying these gifts are bad, right? All of chapter 12 was given to saying these gifts are good and necessary for the body. But if you have these gifts, if you use your gift without love, look at what he says at the end of verse 2. I am nothing. It's trash. It might as well be thrown away. It's actually more destructive to the people of God for you to use a gift, a spiritual gift, in an unspiritual way without love. Verse 3, he says, if I give away all that I have, don't we, don't we like lift those people up? Like they give all of their money, all of their time away. They moved across the ocean to be a missionary. They're a greater Christian than I am. 
Satan says, if you, you can do that. And if I deliver my body to be burned, if I'm willing to be martyred for the faith, to lay it all down, but have not love, I gain nothing. Because love is greater than gifts. Gifts only help to build up the body when they're exercised in love. So that's the first point to note here. Love is greater than gifts. And then as we move into verses 4 through 7, we see that love, I mean, I love what he says here, right? This is what's read at weddings. We're going to get back into it. But the point that I want to make here is that love is commitment in action, not emotional reaction. Love is commitment in action, not emotional reaction. Uh, Love in our culture is very emotionally driven, right? That's even where this phrase, love is love, comes from. It's because it, it, it feels unloving to, to have some definition around love, to have some category around love. But love, biblically speaking, it's a, it's a commitment in action. DC Talk got it right. Love is a verb. How many of you know it? Love is a verb. It is an action. It's something you do for another person. It's not something you gain from another person. It's not a feeling that you get from a thing or a person or an experience. It's something that you do. The word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the primary word in the New Testament, the Greek word for love is agape, which means unconditional, self-sacrificial action. And it is related to emotion. So this, this statement is, it's commitment in action, not emotional reaction. God's love for us, his agape, unconditional love for us, it's related to his emotion, his, his feelings towards us, but it's not, it's not conditioned by it. it. It's conditioned by his movement, his action towards us. Look at how this passage defines love as an action, not an emotion. It says, love is patient and kind. We're well acquainted with the emotion of impatience, aren't we? You get stuck behind somebody slow on your way home or in the church entryway, right? Get me my coffee and get me my seat. And all these kids are in my way. Yeah, I'm impatient. Parents with little children, there's a lot of emotion around training children. And the emotion of impatience just comes so naturally to us. Any one of you who who works or has parents or has kids, right? So I said parents with kids. Well, what about kids with parents? It goes both ways. And And it's not primarily an emotion you feel towards another person. There is emotion connected to it. But agape It means unconditional, action-oriented love. Love is a verb. The Greeks had other words for for feelings, for emotions. Eros was one of the Greek words for love, and it meant like sex and affection, kind of that type of love, right? Phileo is friendship love. It's like the affection, the connection, the love that you have for a friend. And then storge is familial love. It's family love. It's love for your, your own kind, for your blood, for your people, for your parents, for your siblings, for your kids. Regardless of what they do, right, there's this type of like, they're, they're still my family. They're still my family. That's why families so often protect each other and can't see objectively into their own messes. 
And so these are other words for love that the Greeks had, that, that Paul had at his disposal when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He could have said love is eros, love is sex, sex and affection. I think that's part of what our culture means when they say love is love. He could have said love is eros. He could have said love is phileo. Love is for friends. It's, it's affection and it's connection that friends feel for one another. He could have said love is storge. It's this blood-bought commitment to one another that regardless of what somebody does, they're still your family. But he chose this word agape, and this is the primary word used in the New Testament, which is unconditional love. It's unconditional action towards a person regardless of how you feel about that person, what they're doing, what they're saying, how you're disagreeing. Keep that in mind as we look at this now. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If that's not convicting enough about every relationship you've ever been in, I don't know what is. Like, insert COVID, right? Two years of COVID. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. And everyone's thinking like, yeah, those people are so insisting of their own way. But you're probably insisting of your own way. That's why there's a tension there, right? Because as, as human beings, we tend to do this. This is our flesh. Agape love is unnatural for us. To have unconditional commitment in action that's not influenced by our emotions, it's supernatural. And so we need God's help. And Paul is defining for the church what real love is, what agape love is. Look at verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things and it endures all things. Oh, church family, how the world needs to see us living out loving agape relationships where we continue to commit to one another unconditionally in action regardless of how we feel. And I, I'm so glad to be a part of this church because you guys are doing this. This is how, like, when many churches close, closed during COVID and will never reopen again or dwindled and they're really struggling, like, we've stayed together and we've grown because you guys are loving one another. I don't want to give too many examples, but why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them how you feel about the vaccine real quick? Don't. Please don't. It does not insist on its own way. I guarantee you, you're sitting around people who have a different opinion about how global pandemics should be handled or were handled. And yet you're sitting next to each other worshiping Jesus. Right? This is love. It's commitment. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing these rhythms. I'm going to keep being with these people even though they sometimes drive me nuts. And keep in mind, you probably drive them nuts just as much. And how we need people to have commitment in action towards us. Because we, any one of us, 
we emotionally set other people off. They have emotional reactions towards certain things that we think, say, and do, which, if they were to express them, would not feel loving. But love is commitment and action. It's unconditional. Love is also another point just on these verses here. It's sacrificial, not transactional. So while love is commitment in action, right, love is action-oriented, and it does relate to our emotions. I don't want to separate, like, just duty from emotion. The, the word agape, it ties in God's feeling towards us. His actions and his feelings are connected, and so our actions and our feelings are connected, and we need to learn to live by the Spirit so that our actions and our feelings more and more match up. But love is action-oriented, but it's an action-oriented towards sacrificial service towards other people, not transactional using of other people or using your gifts, right? Remember, this is placed in between two chapters about spiritual gifts because love is more important than gifts. If you use your gift without love, it becomes a transactional relationship, If a pastor pastors without love, he starts to use the people in the church for their money, for their tithes, for their offering, for his own pride, for his own, I feel awesome standing up and talking to a couple people, right? So so you have to be careful. If your gift is, is craftsmanship, you judge all of us fools who buy Ikea stuff. Because you're like, I could build something way better Way more quality, it would last you 30 years, and you're buying that Ikea thing, you're going to be throwing that away in three years from now, right? But, but it's, it, it's sacrificial, it, it's commitment in action, it doesn't have to do with your opinions and your, your gift projection towards other people. It, it, it's sacrificial in nature. Isn't that what Paul's getting at here? Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It doesn't use other people for its own self-gratification. It serves other people for their good. Next, as we move into verses 8 through 10, we need to see that love is a permanent reality in the kingdom of God. This is amazing. I love where Paul goes here. Look at verse 8. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. So the gift of prophecy is the ability to foretell truth. Sometimes it's foretelling events. Prophecy often, we're going to talk about this more next week because chapter 14 is about prophecy. Sometimes prophecy gets abused where, where people like try to foretell events and then they get it wrong like 89 times and they get it right once and they're like, see, I'm a prophet. I got that thing right. But, but biblical prophecy in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it often had, to, it had more so to do with the foretelling of events. And sometimes in the New Testament, it's the same. But more often than the foretelling of events, it's the uncovering of truth. It's speaking truth that edifies a people. It's, it's declaring what God has already declared through his word in a way where people align their lives with what God has said in obedience to what God has said. And so he says, but I love this. He says, love never ends. So that's kind of the premise here. It's a permanent reality in the kingdom of God. As for prophecies, again, related to this idea that love is greater than gifts, prophecies will cease. There will come a day when prophecy is no longer needed. 
because we're in the physical presence of God. There's no future events to be told because all it is is eternity of enjoying life, enjoying one another, enjoying the presence of God. And there's, there's no correction, there's no prophetic word that needs to be uttered because we're just in God's presence. Like a prophetic word focuses your mind on Christ and it, and it stirs in you a greater affection for Jesus or it corrects a sin pattern in your life. But in the future, in heaven, when we're in the presence of God, there will be no sin that needs to be corrected and there will be no refocusing of our mind from the things of the world to the things of God because we'll be in his presence. Amen? No prophecy will be needed. As for tongues, they will cease. We'll all know all the languages. Jesus will be praised, and it says in the Bible, every tribe and tongue and nation and language on the earth will be praising him, and we'll all understand it together. And there won't need to be a heavenly prayer language because, again, why? We're in the presence of God, with him, face to face. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Oh, knowledge. There, there won't be knowledge in verse 8, right? It'll pass away. We'll, our, we'll know everything. There won't be anything else to be known. Like eternity, I think, will be just layers back of just experiencing who God is and his creation and, and learning and experiencing all these things that we didn't know. And human knowledge, it'll pass away. It won't be needed. It says, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Love is a permanent reality. It's a permanent fixture in the kingdom of God. When he returns or calls you home, when you are in his presence, when all things have been made new, as Revelation 21 says, says that every, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord, that there will, no, there will no longer be weeping or pain or tears anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I have made all things new. In that day, we won't have a need for any spiritual gifts. I think we'll just have them all. The ones, that, the ones that are still needed, if they're needed. I don't even know how heaven works. I can only imagine, right? <laughs> so can you. I don't, I don't know how it works. But, but Paul here is saying that these things will pass away. They're all limited. They're necessary. They're given for your life here on earth with the people of God and for the advancement of the gospel. But in heaven, when your gifts are no longer needed, what will still exist? Agape. Love. Love never ends. This unconditional movement towards others, this, this unconditional action towards others will still remain. The sacrificial living, thinking about other people, will still remain in heaven. It's an amazing thing. It's a permanent reality in the kingdom of God. And then lastly, as we close out this chapter, verse 11 through 13, we see that the ultimate sign, love is the ultimate sign of Christian maturity. Look at verse 11. He says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And that's part of why these gifts pass away, because now we see in a mirror dimly, and we need different gifts to help us see Christ more clearly, but then we'll see him face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Isn't that right now, here and now, you are fully known by God. But he's still a mystery to you. The working of his kingdom 
the, the interconnectedness of his gifts, the way of love is still a mystery to you, but then it'll be all revealed and experienced. You'll become an expert in the love of God and the love of others. And he says in verse 13, as he closes out, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the ultimate sign of Christian maturity, not excellence with the spiritual gifts. Keep this in mind, church family. This is so important for us to be reminded of because in so many churches, and I've seen it happen time and time again, I've been a part of it. I've probably done this to other people. I've had this done to me where we like elevate certain spiritual gifts or maybe spiritual practices, right? Like devotional life. Those who have the greatest devotional life, they're usually seen as the most spiritual in the community, but they may just be a jerk. Right? Oftentimes, the people who read the most end up being the most critical and judgmental in destroying community. I'm not saying don't read. Please don't hear me saying don't read. But how many, how many times can you think of like, yeah, this person seems to have that gift or that wiring, but man, they sure are hurting other people with it. They have, sure have hurt me, right? And, and certain churches take on these, these characteristics where everyone's trying to imitate each other and everybody's trying to be like each other, right? If you're at a church where the music is great, everybody's trying to learn guitar or drums or learn how to sway and sing. If you're at a church where the preaching's great, everybody's like, I gotta study more, I gotta read more, get me the biggest theology book and I'm gonna read it and I'm gonna hit everyone over the head with it. If you're at a church where the spiritual gifts are very, like the miraculous gifts of prophecy and tongues are very evident, like everybody tries to get that gift because it's seen as more mature, that's not what Paul is telling us here. He doesn't say that your devotional life or the exercise of your spiritual gift, or that one elevated spiritual gift that everybody seems to value a little bit more than the others is a sign of Christian maturity. No, what is love, agape love, unconditional action towards other people regardless of how you feel about them? That's the sign of Christian maturity. Let's see this from Jesus himself. Look at verse Uh, John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. Jesus, in his own words, has said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And he uses the word agape in this passage, this unconditional action towards other people, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What an incredible idea there. Some people have the gift of evangelism, right? They're able to talk about Jesus really well and, and, and make the gospel make sense to non-believers. Not everyone has a gift. Some people do. But what does Jesus himself say is our most evangelistic tool? Our love for one another. When a non-believing world looks in on Christians who are doing life together and they have different opinions, they have different ideas, they have different gifts, they have different personalities, they have different styles, they have different preferences, but they're saying, regardless, I'm going to love you. 
I'm going to serve you. I'm going to put your needs before my own needs. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. You are my apprentices. You're actually a follower of Jesus. Not because you go to church on Sunday. Not because you have a great spiritual gift that you practice in public. If. It's conditional on our action. Now the gospel isn't conditional on our, on our action. It's conditional on Jesus' action, right? We're saved by the work that Jesus has done. But Jesus says, if this gospel, this good news is going to go into all the world, it's conditional on you loving each other. If you have love for one another. And I love at the end of verse 34, he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so let's close out with looking at John 13, uh, John 3, 16 and 17, a very familiar passage for many of us. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Let's be reminded this morning of how Jesus has loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave. See that, that action? Not just an emotion. It, there, there's an emotion, an affection towards us that resulted in action. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is how we know love, church family that God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life that we're incapable of living, to die a sinner's death that we deserved, to overcome sin and death in the grave. That's where we see love in action in a way that should continually inspire us to love others, not just in word, but in our deed. And so every Sunday as we gather at Park Community Church, we want to be reminded of the action that God took in loving us. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. I want to take communion with you this morning as a reminder of the action that God took to love us. Of the agape love, the unconditional movement that he has towards us. And so if you are a follower of Jesus... I invite you to take communion with me. There's a little packet in the pew in front of you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you to just think. And uh, we're glad that you're here. We do believe that taking the communion elements are, are a unique act that Christians, that those who believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, do together to bond us together. Um, and so if you don't believe or if you're unsure, we're so glad that you're here. We ask that you just kind of sit and, and wait as we take this communion act together to remind us of who we are as a body, right? A people who love one another and to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done, that he loved us before we first loved him. So I'm going to invite you to pull the cracker out from the top there. Hold it in your hand and, and, and try to envision Jesus the God-man who, who left heaven on high and walked among us and was ridiculed and scorned and beaten and mocked and who surely had his patience tested by his own disciples, who surely 
as the book of Hebrews says, was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, who, who felt every impulse of negative emotion that you and I feel, yet he was perfect agape in his flesh, in his body, always dying to himself and living to others, always sacrificially thinking about us before himself. And he sat with these disciples, this ragtag group of people, who he had shown agape love to, and he passed the bread, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And after they ate the bread, Jesus passed the cup to this diverse group of people with all of their problems, the mess that he loved, that he agape loved. And, and he said, this is my blood given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you gather together, take it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect picture of love. That you left your glory, your throne on high, and you came to walk among us. Or you're the perfect example of sacrificial living, putting others before yourself. Jesus says we read that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Jesus, that is a picture of you. And through your spirit given to us, you are transforming us to become more and more like that. However, where we fall short, Jesus, you endured the cross. As it says, love endures all things. You endured death that we might have life. And so we thank you for that. God, we thank you for the love that you have for us that you sent your son, Jesus, in our place. And so we fix our eyes on you this morning, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May you grow us up as a mature people who love in the way of Jesus. We pray, amen.